Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask that now we would just hear from you. Uh, Not necessarily my opinions or uh, really anyone's opinions, but we want to hear from you. We want to be led by you, empowered by your Holy Spirit, guided by your word. So please do all of that now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12. We are winding down the book of Hebrews. What a great book. So the book of Hebrews, as we've talked about, is uh, really an, an... I wouldn't say an attack, but it, it's a it's a it's a rebuttal to religiosity, and I like that because I don't like religiosity, and so to me it's it, it kind of warms my heart that way. Uh, but the idea, as we've talked about this, and again. I'll give this intro today and then next week and then we're done with the book of Hebrews. But I want it to sink in our heads a little bit. That the New Testament Jewish Christians now had this dilemma. They grew up Jewish. They knew all the Jewish ritual and all the Jewish stuff and all the Jewish religiosity. And they had lots of social pressure accordingly. And then they find Jesus and they're wrestling with, is Jesus a piece of Judaism or is Jesus the fulfillment of Judaism? And really, as they wrestled with that, the idea here in the book, as we've talked about, is that the author of the book of Hebrews has reiterated over and over and over again that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of Judaism. And as a matter of fact, Jesus is better than any aspect of Judaism that you Jewish people might want to elevate. And how much is that relevant to us today? I said, I think a couple weeks ago, you know, being a Christian really in my mind has sort of two elements. One is I have a personal relationship with God. Very personal, based on his love, not based on my performance or my good works or anything like that, but, but, but based and supported and, and uh, everything built around the fact that God loves me. He sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for me, and I have forgiveness of my sin nature, not only the last time I got upset or did something wrong, which I lost count of, but my very sin nature. I have forgiveness because Jesus took the price for that. And now I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out the life he's called me to live. The bottom line is he did all the work. There's that part of my Christian experience. Well, there's another part of my Christian experience, right? I come to church, I hang out with you guys, I, do, I listen to Christian music, right? There's certain things I do and I don't do. I have a sort of a Christian culture, if you will. 
And I've got to keep in mind that that pales in prominence to the relationship I have with God through Jesus Christ. Pales. And I think we, we, we do a disservice when we don't pause to remember that once in a while, maybe more than once in a while, right? Because we can get pretty good at our Christian thing, do we not? So, that's the book of Hebrews. Now, the cool thing is, in the book of Hebrews, as we wind it down, he went through all of this sort of theology, if you will, through the first 10 chapters or so. And then in the chapter 11, he goes through all these individuals. He's, by the way, you guys, you Jewish Christians, you love your Judaism. You also love your Jewish uh, Old Testament patriarchs, the, the leaders, the, 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 the heroes of the faith. We went through all those over the last couple weeks. And then he starts in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also. You got to like that. So now it's coming to me, right? Now I'm no longer studying history. Now I'm studying today. Because it says, therefore, we also. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What a home run verse. You know, there's, there are a lot of good verses in the Bible. Actually, they're all good verses, right? But, you know, a few of them are killer, right? This is one of them. This is a killer verse. And so I want to break it down a little bit. Can I break it down a little bit? Thanks. Some verses today, by the way, just so you know, because I know how you guys think sometimes. Sometimes you're like, okay, that intro went five minutes before he ever got into therefore. Now we're ten minutes and he's not through verse one. And he promised us that we'd have a party at five o'clock. Are we going to make that? Some of you think that way. Mm -hmm. I know how you are. Um, some verses I'm going to anchor in on today and some verses on some paragraphs we're going to read together is that fair we're going to read through a couple of paragraphs but i still like them but this verse i want to anchor in on a little bit therefore since we therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses what's that mean well it's a, it's a it's a therefore from chapter 11 so we've had these cloud of witnesses, the, the examples that we used in chapter 11. And I want you to notice there's a, kind of, there's a couple different ways to look at witnesses. Sometimes people look at it like they're witnesses, like they're watching us, right? Like they're up in heaven wondering, you know, looking down on us and our lives. Let me ask you this. If you get to heaven before me, do you think you're going to be like, overwhelmed with the presence of God and love and life? Or are you going to say, I wonder what Scott Murphy's doing right about now. I don't think anybody's up there saying, I wonder what Scott Murphy's doing right about now. Right? That's just my, you know, again, whenever we talk about what heaven is like, we, we get a little bit on uh, shaky ground potentially because we don't know. But we know it's awesome. And that's, that's all we need to know, right? Paul 
in 2 Corinthians had an experience where he says he was caught up into the third heaven and he couldn't even describe it. It, was, it, was, it. it would not do it justice to try to put words to it. That's how Paul described it, right? And so we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I believe that the idea of witnesses means these are the folks in chapter 11 that testify to the fact that it's possible to live by faith. Does that make sense? These guys lived by faith. Did they all have it easy? No. They did not have it easy. Some of them had different cir circumstances. Some were harder than others necessarily. But, but the reality is they lived by faith. And therefore, we also have an opportunity to live by faith. Since we're surrounded by so great a, great a cloud of witnesses, folks that have gone before us, have demonstrated that it's possible to live by faith. Is it possible for us to live by faith? Yes. Oh, wait a minute. This is America. Wait a minute. This is 21st century. Is it possible to live by faith? Yes. yes. Wait a minute. I'm having hard times and I'm having a hard time making my mortgage payment. Is it possible to live by faith? Yes. yes. Wait a minute. I'm sick. Is it possible to live by faith? Yes. Wait a minute. My mother-in-law is a little bit annoying. Is it possible to live by faith? Yes. My mother-in-law is not, by the way, but I'm just talking hypothetically. Right? Right. now. It's just said father-in-law, and then I could like talk about maybe Earl's father-in-law or something like that. But how about I just get out of trouble and keep moving? Is that all right? Okay, good. So therefore, those guys did it. We can do it. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Well, how do we do it? Check this out. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. With what? Endurance. Endurance. Life is a distance run for most of us. Life is a distance run. Some of us run more distance than others, right? It's not a sprint. Now, I'm not an athlete necessarily. I still play basketball at 61. Pretty good. Not great. Pretty good. Right? But I'm not a distance runner, and I'm not a sprinter, and I never have been, and I never have been. Right? But you run a sprint different than you run a marathon. Right? You run it, you run the marathon with endurance. And so we need to run this race of life with endurance. And there's a way you do that. There are things that are helpful to accomplish that and things that are not so helpful to accomplish that now if you were going to run a marathon would you like to do it with your hands and feet all tied up in ropes right can you imagine you're at the gate right you got those creepy shorts <laughs> right those should be illegal. But anyway, you got those creepy shorts, and you got your feet in the, in the whatever they call them? Huh? Blocks. Should come up with a more creative word than that. But so you got the creepy shorts and the feet in your blocks, and you're all tied up in ropes. I mean, think about this. Is that how you run a race? Well, then why in the world would we live the Christian life with a passive attitude about sin. 
I'm like, oh well. You know, I think I can do. I think I can. I think I can tie myself up in ropes and still run that race. How many of us do that as Christians? Like, it's no big deal. Well, can I tell you this? It is a big deal. It is a big deal. Now, does that mean if we stumble, if we mess up, if we, you know, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about having a deliberate, I don't care attitude about sin. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Right? And the Bible's pretty clear about, you know, the things that trip us up. And honestly, a lot of the things that trip us up are the things that have tripped up people for a long time. So we don't need to go down the list. Right? But if God's telling you not to do it, if God's word tells you not to do it, can I tell you this? You want to live a blessed life? Don't do it. I want to live a life that is like full of God's favor. I mean, if I believe that God is God, and God cares about me, and God loves me, and God has a personal relationship with me, I want God to, to bless me. Is that fair? And it's hard for me to, it, it's a little inconsistent for me to expect God to bless me and still have a, a, a disregard for doing, doing right and wrong. Simple as that. So that's sin. Fair enough? We don't want to run a marathon race tied up in knots. Now, would I also, you know, every now and then, when I was, when I was younger, I used to have these uh, ankle weights, right? You ever have ankle weights, right, you, for exercise? You tie them up, and it makes your feet heavier, right? Well, the cool thing about getting old, right, is you don't have to wear the ankle weights. Your feet already feel heavy, <laughs> right? So it's cool. You don't have to bend over and, tie, and put them on. You just always have them everywhere you go, ankle weights, Right? Now, if I'm in the box with my creepy shorts on, do I say, hang on a minute, I've got to put on my ankle weights? Do I do that? No. This is interesting, I think. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. What's that mean? That means there's sin definitely gets in the way of us running this marathon race of life, the Christian life of faith. But there are also some things that are not necessarily sin, but they just don't help. Does that make sense? I like that the Bible makes a distinction, that there are, there's the sin which ensnares us, and there's the weight. They're different. And only you can decide what that is for you. I'm not going to prescribe that for you. You have to decide. That's between you and the Lord. There's some people, they can watch a certain movie, and for them, between them and the Lord, that's fair game. For other people, maybe not. Does that make sense? And there are some things that, you know, there's, there's, there's grace, right? We're, we're, we're saved by grace. We're not trying to establish any kind of religious hierarchy. But there's some things that are sins and some things that are weights. And there's some things in life, honestly, I, I've learned this over the years, there's some things in life that are not necessarily bad, but I just need to get rid of them. They're clutter. They're clutter. They're getting in the way of me living a life of faith. So he says, let's get rid of those and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
It is a distant run, distance run, and we need to finish well. Every now and then we watch the Kentucky Derby. Don't bet on it because that's a weight. But we watch the Kentucky Derby. And you ever notice that every now and then there's like the favorite horse or whatever that's like comes out with an awesome start? Right? And then like every now and then, like there's this quiet horse about halfway through, right? What happens to the quiet horse? Right? And what do we know about that first horse that like didn't quite finish well? Does that horse get enshrined? Is that horse's name up on the, you know, Hall of Fame of horse? Not necessarily, right? What's it matter? Finishing well. This race of life we're running, finish well. You say, well, I started poorly. Doesn't matter. Finish well. Well, I start, you know, I, had, I did this and I've got this baggage and I've got this background and I've got this, this, this challenge and, and this history and this stuff and all... Finish well. Finish well. Finish well. The Bible is full of people that started well and didn't finish well. Life is full of people that started well and didn't finish well. I have friends, too many of them, that started well and haven't finished well. And I don't want that for myself or any of us. So, let's run that race. Well, how do we run it? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I love that verse. That is just absolutely one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Looking unto Jesus. The NIV says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. I like the idea that, that our focal point is on Jesus, right? When you, <clears throat> when you, you know, if you have a camera and you focus on something, you know, a bird or whatever you're taking a picture of, you focus on it. Everything around it is still there, right? But it, it's fuzzy by comparison if our focus is right, right? And so in the same way, if we focus on Jesus, then we find the strength to endure and to run this distance with endurance. And notice also Jesus is the author and the finisher. If Jesus saved us, if Jesus saved us, he's the author. He's the author of our faith. He's the one that wrote the book on our faith. He's the initiator of our faith. Well, he's also the finisher of our faith. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, he's the finisher of our faith. By the way, as we're talking about Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him. You imagine this? Jesus is hanging on the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And, you know, the Bible gives us a pretty specific recording of what words... Uh, would have been spoken by Jesus, or what words were spoken by Jesus. We don't know necessarily if there are other words. Doesn't really say necessarily, but I, th but I get the idea that if, if you could have had a dialogue with Jesus 
as he's hanging on that cross. And if you just said, why? Why are you doing this? This is the answer. Think about this. Jesus is hanging on a cross, and if you could have gone up to him and said, why are you doing that? He would have said, for the joy that is set before me. And if you said, what's the joy? What, what's, what's so worth it? What is, what is going to be so joyful that it's worth it to hang on a cross? And he would have called you by name. Personally. He would have said, I'm going to get that relationship right with that person. Is that crazy? Let's get our head around that for a minute. Let's, let's, let's lay aside the sin and the weight that it so easily, or the sin that so easily ensnares us and the weight that weighs us down. Let's lay that aside. Let's lay aside the religion and let's consider that as he's hanging on that cross and you say, why are you doing this? And he says, for the joy that is coming. And he identifies the joy as a relationship with you. The God of all creation. Is that personal? Yes. That's personal. It doesn't get more personal than that. That's personal. And it was worth enduring the cross. That, that joy was worth enduring the cross it was worth the shame. He despised the shame in comparison to the joy that he's going to experience with us. And, I love this, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is now the fifth time this, that this idea has been mentioned in the book of Hebrews. That he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And as we said the other four times, He's sitting, not pacing. It's done. Work is done. It's not dependent upon me. He's not like pacing, hoping I don't do something stupid, right? Because that's taken care of. He's sitting down at the right hand of God in heaven. Above all of life's circumstances, above all world events, it's all taken care of. No pacing. No fretting. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So, you know, the example of Jesus, Jesus' life, he endured hostility. And as we focus on him, again, you know, looking unto Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, his life should be an encouragement to us. We can follow in his steps, as Peter told us. You know, as we do that, as we consider Jesus, as we look to Jesus, fix our eyes on Jesus, lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, knowing that others have gone before us, so great a cloud of witnesses, and they've demonstrated that it's possible. I think of it like this. I think when I'm coming to Jesus, maybe my youth, we'll say, for example. As I'm coming to Jesus in my youth, I know that there are some things that, like, I got to lay aside. That I got to not do in order to live the Christian life. 
or things that I should do in order to live the Christian life. And, there's, and it's kind of, it feels pretty straightforward in a sense, at least in, in terms of figuring out what it is. But then it, later on in life, again, I mentioned it's an endurance race. What are our biggest temptations, let's say later in life, or later as we walk with the Lord for a while, as we've walked with the Lord for a while, regardless of our age, You know, I'm not tempted. I've been walking with the Lord for a long time. And so as a result, I don't find a lot of temptation in things that might trip up, might have tripped me up in my youth. But you know what tempts me, I think, the most to walk away from the Lord? Weariness and discouragement. Right? It's not like the flagrant sin that we think about. I mean, it can be. If we dealt with that in verse, in verse 1. But there's another thing that can weigh us down. Weariness. It's a distance run, right? So what do we got to not be on a distance run? Weary. Well, how do you avoid being weary on a distance run? You've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You've got to be fixing our eyes on Jesus. Guess what? You cannot distance run the life of faith to the finish line in your own strength. Right? We've seen people try. You can't do it. You cannot, you cannot, do the, you cannot go the distance on your own strength. So, weariness, discouragement. Can I tell you, and I, don't wanna, I know it sounds like I'm uh, a little bit self-serving because I'm the pastor. Pastors are, there's certain things that pastors are supposed to say, right? But I'm, I, w- I just want to say this just because it's in the Bible here. You know what I think is the great, one of the greatest protections against weariness and discouragement? Definitely fixing on our eyes on Jesus. Definitely being filled with the Holy Spirit. Definitely uh, having a... a a regular diet of reading the Word. But you know what really, one of the best antidotes to weariness and discouragement? Chapter 10, verse 25. 24 and 25. Hey, let's consider one another in order to stir up love and good, good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the matter of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more, so much the more as you see the day approaching. Gathering together, assembling together. I'm sorry, I said, I said gathering. I made a big deal out of it. There's a difference between gathering and assembling, right? Assembling is like putting, a, putting structures together, right? Deliberately, intentionally, right? Like you come here today, and, and you come with intentionality, you come here to, to, to live out your piece of the body of Christ. And your piece is different than my piece, and every piece is critical. Or we gather, like raking a pile of leaves, stirring up a pile of dirt, right? And it's all just a blob there, right? I think if we assemble, I think if we come together to assemble, guess what that does? That guards us against weariness. 
That recharge, honestly, being here recharges me. It recharges me to see you guys and what God is doing in your lives. And I love to hear the stories. I love that break time. I know it goes forever. That's intentional. I love to hear your stories. I love to hear what God is doing. You know what that does? That encourages me. That guards against discouragement. And I love that we all are able to live this thing together. Right? Those are the guards against weariness and discouragement. Verse 4, you've not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So, you know, again, if we're considering Jesus, hey, we might think we're having a hard time or whatever like that, but we've, if we're reading this, then we're alive. We've not, re, we've, not, we've not been killed like Jesus was. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, we're going to read down to verse 12, by the way. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure heart, uh, chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect." Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about as we live this distance run of faithfulness to the Lord, as we live it out, as we lay aside the sin and the, and, this, and the weights, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we guard against weariness and discouragement, you know what there's going to be? There's going to be times when God chastens us, when God disciplines us. You ever been disciplined by God? I have. I have. Does it feel good? Okay, back up. You ever been disciplined by your parents? Right? Does that, hurt? Does that feel good? Would you rather have been disciplined by your mother or your father? Mother. Everybody knows mom's, mom's soft. Oh, Give those puppy dog eyes. Dad doesn't fall for that stuff. Right? Right? Discipline can be painful in the moment. Right? But what happens if we're not disciplined as children? Proverbs says, a child left to himself brings shame to his mother, right? We need to be trained. And could it be that sometimes God needs to train us? God needs to redirect us? God needs to correct us? You know, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Sometimes the Bible is corrective. Do we let it correct us? You know, one of the things about being a, uh, what's the word? Seasoned Christian. You've been walking with the Lord for a while. Sometimes, if we're not careful, 
we can sort of have our mind made up on how God works or what God's word says. Usually it has to do with our doctrinal backgrounds, candidly. Right? God's word says this. And so if, uh, or, or, or my, my, my background, my presuppositions say this. So if God's word says something contrary to that, well, what do I do? I just kind of skip over that verse. Is that how we read the Bible? That's why it's important to read the whole Bible. Show me a person that's, let me just say this, show me a person that's doctrinally imbalanced, I'll show you somebody that doesn't know or read the whole Bible. It's very important. But sometimes God chastens us. Sometimes God corrects us. And I would ask us, are we teachable? Only you can say that between you and God. Are we teachable? I want to be open to God teaching me. Now, how does that come? Sometimes that comes, I've had times where I just read the Bible and I'm like, oh, I, just, I think I just got busted. Right? Sometimes it's by other people. Right? How a person responds to correction reveals their heart. So, just FYI. You know, we all got disciplined as children. You know, if, if hopefully we all did. Anybody here miss out on discipline by their parents? We can just take care of it right now. So we're all, like, real good, right? We've all been disciplined in one way or another. And hopefully we respect our parents for doing so. How much more so does God want to discipline his children? And by the way, if God doesn't discipline you, that should be more worrisome to you. Because if you're his child, he disciplines us. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather healed. So he goes back to the, to the athletic analogy again. So he's talking about, you know, not only would you not want to tie yourself up when you're running the race and not only would you not want to put ankle weights on when you're running the race, you might even think about what? Training for the race. Fair enough? So you don't want to be a bad runner by wearing weights and tying yourself up. You also want to be a good runner. You want to be a runner that's prepared for the things of life. You want to be a runner that is growing stronger. And so he's saying, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather healed. Sometimes there are things, there are injuries that need to heal. And sometimes there are things that need to be strengthened. What things make us strong? Think about this. So a runner is going to train, right? A runner is going to do specific exercises. He's going to eat specific things. He's going to do certain things. He'll probably sleep, you know, he'll probably try to get regular sleep. He'll do a lot of things to try to make him strong and prepared for, for the run, right? In our lives, what are those things that make us strong? Assembling together. Being thankful. Choosing to be thankful. You know, there's, as a doctor, 
essentially, I'm, my, my brain's a little on this, uh, my, my medical brain now. I'm taking, my, taking you to my medical brain for a minute. Can I take you there? It's pretty compli complicated. My medical brain right now is on the non-traditional things that make us healthy. And I'll give you the punchline. Most of the things that we think of as traditional medicine too often just support the system. Is that fair? I'm about ready to label myself. What the heck? They already know. Um, and you know, if you study, have I talked about the blue zones? Raise your hand if you know what the blue zones are. Is what? Yeah, it's, no, it's, no, it's not for unloading, loading, unloading. So uh, old people know it or anybody in my family. Anybody's basically been within the vomit of my opinions uh, knows what the blue zones are. The blue zones are five areas of the world. This is fascinating. You've got you to Google this if you don't know this. The blue zones are five areas of the world that are notorious for people living well into their 90s up into their 100s. And they have a disproportionate amount of those people that do that. And there's been people smarter than I that have studied what are the habits of these blue zone people. You'd want to know, right? Well, guess what? <laughs> they don't take a lot of cholesterol medicine and get a lot of surgery and do all the right stuff and are, you know, all the stuff your doctor tells you you're supposed to do. See, I told you I was going to label myself. You know what they do? They learn how to de-stress. They have a faith community. It's good for your health. They highly value family for the generations. It's good for your health. Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? Did your doctor ever tell you that? Did your doctor ever tell you to go to church? Besides this doctor. Did doctor ever tell you to go to church? It's good for your health. It'll help you live longer. Right? What about family? Did the Bible ever tell you to honor your... I mean, did your doctor ever tell you... You go into your doctor. Hey, I want to live to be 100. Awesome. Here's what you got to do. Honor your father and mother. Did your doctor ever tell you that? Your doctors did. <laughs> did your doctor ever tell you, honor your father and your mother? You know why? Because it'll go well with you and you'll live long on the earth. Right? We've been duped by the system. That's a whole other story. But back to the athletic analogy. Let's do the things that make us strong. Let's do the things that make us healthy. Spiritually speaking now, let's do the things that make us spiritually healthy. Let's assemble together. Let's read the Bible. Let's choose to be thankful. Let's do all of these things that make us healthy. It's not rocket science. Don't tie yourself up in knots. Don't wear ankle weights. But train. Do the things that make us healthy. Why? This is all therefore from the first 11 chapters. 
Pursue peace with all people. Here's another thing we ought to do. And now he's just going to give us some kind of tips on things we ought to do to help make us strong. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You know, getting along with other people kind of helps us be spiritually healthy. Does it not? Yeah. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, I've said this before. That says, if it is possible. There's some people that's just not real possible to get a warm fuzzy with. Is that okay? Is that just honest reality? That's honest reality. So what should I do with those people? Just don't pick a fight with them. Right? How many people does it take to have a fight? At least two. Right? And if you just withdraw, you don't have to, you don't have, guess what? You don't have to fight. As much as it depends on you, live it peaceably with all, with all men. We can at least live peaceably, even if we're not warm and fuzzy. And he says also, and pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do that, certainly to the finish line. We cannot do that in our own strength. He says also, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many have become defiled. I've got to talk about bitterness for a second. Don't fall short of the grace of God. Please. Please don't fall short of the grace of God. You know... It's, it's a little bit of a paradox, I understand. It's, it's a little bit of a struggle to kind of get our heads and our lives and our, uh, everything around this. But the reality is, we don't, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace, right? God does all the work, but somehow in his amazing balance, he gives us the free will to choose to embrace his grace. Now, is that a work? No, it's not a work. It's just embracing his grace. Don't fall short of the grace of God. And there's one thing that causes us to sh fall short of the grace of God, and that is bitterness. Well, what's bitterness? Bitterness, well, let me back up a second. Sometimes in life, Let's say, I'm working through my analogies right now in my head, right? I kind of have them when I come here, right? It's like I am prepared, but I kinda, they kinda, they're kind of a, a work in progress. Is that okay? You guys are being patient with me today. I appreciate that. You walk into Walmart, and you run into somebody, and you strike up a conversation, and you realize that you have a common acquaintance, right? And you say, do you know Drew Geertz? And, well, since it's Drew, they're going to say, oh, yeah, I love that guy. He's awesome. He's awesome. 
And I can't say anybody else, or I can't do the other example, because, you know, it, just, it would lose it. But you ever have a time when you look at, when you talk to somebody, do you know so-and-so? And you can see it in their eyes. Yeah, I know so-and-so. That's why I'm talking like a ventriloquist. <laughs> I can't stand to move my mouth talking about that guy. <sighs> and he breathes heavy. <sighs> and then his hands do something creepy. I can't stand that guy. Yeah. The answer to both those questions was yes. Do you know Drew Geertz? Oh, yeah. The answer was yes. Do you know that other guy? Yeah. I know that guy. Right? Is there anybody that makes you feel that way? That could be bitterness. That could be bitterness. Right? Here's the danger of bitterness. If I struggle with lots of things, if I struggle with cussing, we'll just give an easy one, I can determine by the, what comes out of my mouth whether or not I cussed. Fair enough? If I struggle with alcohol, I can determine based on whether or not it goes in my mouth whether I drank alcohol. If I struggle with bitterness, it's a little more evasive. Does that make sense? And the bitter person will say, usually sooner or later when you have a conversation, because I've had these conversations lots of times. Somewhere along the line, the bitter person will say, I'm not bitter. I just can't stand the guy. <laughs> right? Something like that. They'll, they'll give you a reason why it's not really bitterness. It's just that I can't stand the guy. Right? Can I just tell you, be, be careful about that. Because if I, let's say, um, well, we're on the front row, and I certainly can't pick on Abby, and I certainly can't pick on Sandy, so, and I certainly can't pick on kids. Who's, oh, Mike. Yeah, Mike. <laughs> let's say Mike borrowed a hammer from me back in 1984. Never gave it back. Right? This is how bitterness works. Right? It's over stupid stuff, by the way. It's usually stupid stuff. Mike borrowed a hammer back in 1984, my favorite hammer. Mm. East Wing. From my dad. My dad gave it to me. And his dad gave it to him. Oh. And I'm just stewing over it. Right? Do you think Mike, what's Mike doing? He's oblivious. Yeah, he's hammering. <laughs> I don't remember where I got this thing, but man, it works. Right? This is how bitterness works. I want Mike to suffer for what he did to me. And who's suffering? Every time. Every time. Every time. Mike's living happily ever after, using my hammer. I should charge you interest for that since 1983. Right? That's how it works. 
You know, beware, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many have become defiled. This is a common thing. Many become defiled this way. Beware. And also, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Esau is an interesting guy. We talked about, we've talked about him at times. You know, it says, be careful that you're not a fornicator or a profane person. Now, we think of a fornicator as a certain thing, and I want to be sensitive to all ages here. We think of fornication as a certain thing, and we think of profanity as a certain thing, right? But let's broaden it a minute. Can I broaden it for a second? A fornicator is somebody who's more concerned with his flesh than the things of God. Is that fair? And you could even broaden it to, like, any aspect of my flesh. I really want that, and I want it now, and I don't care what it takes to get it. That's a fornicator. Okay? A profane person is, I don't care about God. Right? It's not that I say a certain word that comes out of my mouth. It's saying that I don't care about God. And so in, in reality, these are sort of the same person. This is sort of the same problem. It's just, a, it's just different labels on the same problem. Is I don't care, I don't, all I care about is my flesh, and I really, relatively speaking, don't care much about God because I care so much more about my flesh. That was Esau. Esau, is, uh, many know the story. Esau was out doing something outside. His twin brother Jacob is inside making stew, right? Jacob was, uh, Esau was born first, so he would have had the birthright and the blessing, okay? The birthright is the responsibility, the, 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 the firstborn would have had the, the duty to carry on the godly legacy of the family, right? The, 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 the firstborn is sort of the shepherd of the, of the next generation. That's what it meant to, be the, to have the birthright. That was a big deal, Right? The blessing was the provision to get that, right? So like if, if, you know, if, if you're supposed to carry on the family name or family legacy or take care of all the rest of the family or the, take care of the next generation, then you need the provision to do that, right? And so, you know, whoever carries that out should also be the beneficiary of the life insurance. We'll say it that way. Does that make sense? And so in Jacob and Esau's case... There was the birthright, and there was the blessing. Esau comes in from, from outside. He's been hunting or doing whatever he's doing. Jacob's inside warming that stew. J Jacob's a little bit of a manipulator. Esau was born first. Esau is entitled to, as a matter of birth order, he's entitled to both the blessing and the birthright. Esau says, man, I'm hungry. He says, give me some of that stew because I'm a fornicator. All I really care about right now is my flesh. I want what I want to eat, and I'm hungry, and I want it now. He says, give me some of that stew. Jacob says, tell you what, you sell me your birthright, and you have some stew. Esau was a fornicator. He wanted that stew. He was also a profane person. What does he say? Birthright, birthright, schmirthright. I don't care about my birthright. That's a profane person. What I really want is that stew. I don't care about my birthright. Who cares about carrying on godliness to the next generation? That's profane. So you know the story. He gets the stew. He sells his birthright. But everything's good. 
because I still got the blessing. I'm still going to get what's even better. What's the best deal? I get the stew. I don't give a rip about any kind of godly legacy, and I still get to be the beneficiary of the life insurance policy. Right? Well, for you know afterward, when he wanted to inherit the life insurance policy, the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So you know the story. You know that it was complicated. And Esau winds up not getting the blessing or the birthright. Right? Because he got tricked, basically. So he didn't get the blessing or the birthright. And that's when he really flipped out. You ever notice this? Sometimes, if we're not careful, we can be the person who's like, I don't care about the godliness. Oh, wait a minute. Does that mean I don't still get the stuff? And that's when they flip out. Right? Too much is given, much is required. We've been given a godly heritage as Christians. Right? And we need to carry it out. And so, Esau... He never found a place to repent. Repentance could have changed all that, but he didn't. Verse 18, For you have not come to the, to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. So here in these next verses, 18 through uh, 24, he compares, the writer now is comparing sort of these analogies, the Old Testament mountain, the Mount Sinai, where the Old Testament law was given, contrasting that to Mount Zion, the, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, where, where the idea of heaven, Mount Zion being a reference to heaven. So he's contrasting these two things, by the way. And so now he's talking about, you know, as we're doing this, as we're running this endurance life, keep in mind, it's not about trying to win points or doing all the right stuff. It's about living under God's grace. He says, you've not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness of, and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of word so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. So back in the book of Exodus, when Moses started to go up the Mount Sinai, remember when he got, went up Mount Sinai, he got the Ten Commandments from God, right? The mountain was, was regarded by God as so holy because that's where God was going to meet with Moses. It was so holy that nobody was allowed to come near it, even an animal. They weren't allowed to come near it, and, and it, was, it was sort of representative of the, the holiness of God. And God was to be feared in a sense, right? Well, the fulfillment of that is Mount Zion, heaven, God's grace, Jesus, all of that that allows us to approach, and this is what the whole book of Hebrews has been talking about, right? That now because of Jesus... We can approach God. We don't have to be afraid of God. We can approach God freely because he made it all possible for us. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits 
of just men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So Abel was the very first martyr back in the book of Genesis. And so uh, we as Christians have the privilege of approaching God by his grace and not by our works, not by law, not by any of that. And so Mount Zion is the reference to heaven where God's grace abounds. And there's lots of angels and lots of witnesses and it's going to be a glorious place that we get to go to. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things which are being, that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And so God's voice was frightful there at Sinai, so much so that it shook the earth. And you know, God is going to shake the earth again. As we mentioned earlier, if we don't have the Lord, and if we don't stand on the Lord, stand on his word, this world right now, even today, is a scary place. It's a scary place. And Really, if you think about it, regardless of our political affiliation, regardless of who we put our trust in, from an earthly standpoint, do you think there's any human being or collection of human beings that are smart enough and diplomatic enough to solve the world's problems? Honestly, I just don't. I'm not real optimistic. I'm not real optimistic from a secular standpoint. But that's not a bummer. Because I am extremely optimistic from a heavenly standpoint that God is in control. God is in control. God knows what's going to happen in Israel. God knows what's going to happen in my life and everywhere in between. God's got it all worked out. And as time goes on, there's just such an incredible, I mean, divide between the secular worldview and the biblical worldview that honestly, my heart breaks for people that are trying to figure out this life apart from God. My heart breaks for people that are trying to figure out this life apart from God or this world apart from God or this politics apart from God. You know, he says, and different commentators have different takes on this. He says, yes, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Somehow there's going to be a shaking yet to come. Therefore, verse 28, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us, and by the way, that kingdom we're going to cannot be shaken. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is consuming fire. 
So therefore is that we hold on to God's grace and not to our religion. And that's the thing that's not shakable. This life is an endurance race. The only way to, to run it is to hold on to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so we're going to mix things up a little bit today, if you don't mind. Uh, and I want to do communion at the end. Honestly, because I love this verse. Many of you heard me read this before. I love this verse as it relates to communion. Chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider this for a second. Again, consider that Jesus is on the cross. And the reason he's there is for the joy that was set before him. The joy that he could have fellowship with us again. You know, we understand relationships a little bit on a human level, right? You know there's some relationships, like I said, tongue-in-cheek a little bit about Drew, right? There's, there's relationships that we love. We have friends here that we love. We're like family, right? I have friends that I haven't seen in a long time. There's like I can see them and I'll, I'll pick back up and it's going to be awesome. And we can have what, what I would call fellowship right and then there's other people that like I have to choose not to be bitter about right and that's its own thing and then there's a lot of people in between you ever notice that there's a lot of people in between right maybe it's just weird right God wanted completely unhindered fellowship with each and every one of us and so he hung on a cross to make it possible. And so, kids are coming back in. That's sweet. Yeah, come on in. So, the night before Jesus died, he gathered with his disciples and he set this example for them and for us. He said, you know, I want you to remember this time. I want you to remember that I died on a cross for you. I want you not to lose sight of it. I want you to remember it so much that I'm going to institute this thing we call communion, the Lord's Supper. And I want you to know that this bread, which I'm breaking, represents my broken body, shed for you. And this juice represents my shed blood which was poured out for you. And so, as we partake of it, consider the why. You know, everybody does everything because of a why. You go to work tomorrow because of a why. You eat because of a why. We all operate according to a why. The why that Jesus hung on a cross was for the joy that was set before him. And that joy was a 
fellowship type relationship with you and with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you endured the cross, that you despised the shame. And Lord, we are particularly thankful that you think that we were worth it. And so Lord, we pray that you'd bless this bread and bless this juice, that we would be reminded of what you did for us. So have your way with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you feel led, and again, it's not mandatory for anybody, but as you feel led, feel free to come up and take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice and partake on your own. And then at the end, I'll come up and pray for us and close us out. All right?
God is good. God is so good. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for all you've done for us, for all you've made possible for us. And Lord, even now we ask that you would give us the strength to strengthen our feeble knees by your grace. You give us the wisdom to get rid of the sin and get rid of the, the weights, get rid of the bitterness, get rid of the fornication and the profanity, get rid of anything that gets in the way and just cling to you. And Lord, we're thankful, so very thankful that you make it all possible. So please have your way with us, Lord. Guide us and lead us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome afternoon because you're coming back at five.